We're going to be talking about the Biden administration's proposed 2023 budget. A lot of the proposals in there affect corporate power indirectly and in a very intentional way. Yeah. Power is the dark matter of economics. You know, there's a few thousand unelected corporate executives and shareholders and big institutions and small ones that are making the decisions, really critical decisions that affect the way trillions of dollars move through our economy. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. Goldie, today on the podcast, we get to talk to Nico Luciani, who has this fantastic title, which is the director of corporate power at the Roosevelt Institute. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm mesmerized by that title. I don't think it implies that he's in charge of all power at the Roosevelt Institute. Or an electrical utility. Because that's what I, when I see that, I think of like Seattle City Light. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, all joking aside, I think that, you know, it's really exciting to get to talk to somebody who is focused on the real work of economics, which is dealing with power, unequal amounts of power. I, I think as we said in the podcast before, power is the dark matter of economics. It makes up close to 85% of what matters, but it's really hard to see or characterize or quantify. And that's and, why orthodox uh, economists ignore it, because right. it, it gets in the <laughs> exactly. way of their, their bullshit theories. If yeah. we actually talk exactly. about power, then yeah. all of this uh, supply demand curve stuff like it's physics yeah. uh, doesn't Goes. work anymore. And it's particularly telling, Nick, because we're going to be talking about uh, the Biden administration's proposed 2023 budget. Right. And there's very little in that document that speaks directly to power. A lot of the proposals in there affect corporate power indirectly and in a very intentional way. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see what his perspective is on the budget. And with that, let's talk to Nico. I'm Nico Luciani. I direct the Corporate Power Program at the Roosevelt Institute. Uh, we're a think tank, a student network, and the nonprofit arm of the Roosevelt Library. And we're really trying to advance a new common sense around uh, economic policy uh, and then push forward a, a accompanying policy ideas for a more democratic and equitable economy. Well, let's start, let's start with an obvious question. What incarnation is director of corporate power and why is it necessary? Well, um, as you all know well, and your listeners will know well, today in 2022, you know, there's a few thousand unelected corporate executives and shareholders and big institutions and small ones that are making the decisions, really critical decisions that affect the way trillions of dollars move through our economy, um, both directly in their decision making on issues like pricing, on how much tax they want to pay and to whom, um, issues of pay and hiring capital allocation. These are all decisions that affect all of us in one way or another. Um, but these uh, few people uh, in very high places in uh, the business world also indirectly affect our lives through their influence over public policy and the rules of the game. So we're set up as part of the think tank to research 
corporate behavior, the structures which enable um, harms stemming from that. Um, we try to also dig a little bit deeper and challenge some of the axioms and origin stories of, of today's um, economy based around shareholder first business models. And then we try to promote alternative economic thinking, um, similar to what I think you all are doing um, to rewrite the rules, to make them more democratic within firms, between firms, and then over firms. Um, and uh, essentially, get back to a place where supersized firms are rule takers, not the rule makers. So speaking of rules, uh, the Biden administration released their 2023 budget proposal a couple of weeks ago, and it did seem to send a loud message that Biden wants to curb corporate power. What's in it? And uh, what do you think is significant? Just to start, to be honest, there are lots of goods. There are also some bads and some you know, maybe a few uglies in the president's budget, but uh, to start out on really just focus on the goods and, and what it could do to curb excessive corporate power. I'd say there's three main areas and we can dig in a little bit more if you'd like. Um, the first one, I think that the president and his team made a, a real important decision to call out support for work uh, that's being done in the Congress and SEC to tackle the pernicious use of uh, share buybacks. Um, yeah. We can go into detail on that. That's that I think was very important. It was not talked about so much, but I think an important part of uh, of the budget document. Then um, there, in terms of the funding side, there's further and really historic increases in funding for the antitrust law mechanisms, both the antitrust division of the DOJ and the FTC. I think w will make a difference. Those agencies are incredibly understaffed and uh, we need to build them up as, as well as so many other federal agencies to be able to take on corporate power. And then the third area where there was a lot of heat and a lot of discussion and a lot of good movement was on the tax code. And, you know, the president said from the beginning that he wants to reward work, not wealth. And so a lot of the existing tax proposals we'd heard in his campaign um, were there, including increasing the corporate income tax rate, the personal income tax rate, et cetera, um, eliminating fossil fuel tax preferences. I think that was an important part of it. And then there's a couple of new tax proposals, one on ensuring a minimum tax uh, for centimillionaires and another to make sure that U.S. and foreign multinationals pay 15% per country everywhere. And that would effectively um, end the abuse of tax havens. Well, why don't we start with stock buybacks, which we have talked about so often on this show, because they're just, it's such, it's both such an egregious practice and simultaneously proof positive that as a country, we could afford to do almost anything we chose if we wanted to, right? Yep. <laughs> it's both, uh, it's, it, you know, it's a waste of money. And it also proves that like, if we wanted to fund anything, <laughs> there's tons of money there to well, do it. An so, extra trillion dollars to invest yeah, in the economy. Exactly. Per yeah. Year. So tell, yeah, yeah, per year. Per year. Uh, it's not so, nothing. So tell us what the what the budget reflects. Yeah, so I think what the budget is is getting to is really recognizing a growing consensus of what you just said that open market stock buybacks are used principally to manipulate stock prices and earnings per share to benefit in the short term, you know, C-suite executives who who get paid uh, based on earnings per share and other other metrics related to stock price, but also, you know, actually 
shape the way the stock market is working, I think, in important ways. There was a study recently that showed that something like 40% of the gains of the equity rally over the past you know, eight or nine years comes from companies buying back their own shares. I mean, that's right. proof positive of a very, very unhealthy capital market. Yeah. So there's those big, bigger macro issues. And then as you said, the, 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 the also the, the opportunity cost of all this wasted money. So, so what the budget does is it, it shows support for essentially disconnecting the ability of corporate executives to juice the stock right at the moment they're selling shares, uh, which has been the preferred way of many corporate executives um, to get a little pay bump, um, incidentally, while they're using uh, corporate uh, funds. So that's essentially what the budget says it does. I think it's really important because now we have both the Security and Exchange Commission, which is engaged in the new rulemaking around stock buybacks, which would increase the transparency, ideally at a daily level. So you could see on every day what a company has bought back in shares and track that against insider selling from executives. So that's moving forward, hopefully in a positive way. And we've put in some submissions on that. Um, you've got Congress moving uh, accordingly. And you know, you've also got, maybe surprisingly, uh, a lot of, if you wanna say sustainable or just common sense investors, which are saying this has gotta end. And so we may be at a place where this particular provision in, in the budget sort of symbolizes peak buybacks because we are now at a peak and this is a record year, as you know, you know, maybe this will signal that the time has come. I just want to be clear about the, the policy and the budget. What, what you were referring to is that um, there's a lot of studies that show that a company will announce stock buybacks uh, that will drive the price up immediately and then executives sell at that moment. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and uh, as I understand it, this would put a, a three-year freeze on executives selling their shares after announcing a, sh a share repurchase. Yeah, something around three to four. This is a you know it's a proposal, so it's not written right. into legislative language. But that that's sort of the the idea is to have a cooling off period to prevent executives from selling their shares at the time of or just after uh, a share repurchase. And you know to the extent that you believe that a lot of these share repurchases are done to uh, boost personal uh, income and there are some, some, some private interests in mind, which I think is the case, um, this would essentially uh, eliminate that. So just playing it back to you, I hadn't thought it quite through. If you're, if you're the CEO of a company that does a stock buyback, you will not be able to sell any of your shares for three years after that action takes place. Yeah. Okay, well, well that will... That would that will put a kibosh on it. <laughs> well, exactly. It would, exactly. Yeah, there it, it would, be it would limit the interest enthusiasm of enthusiasm in the C suite <laughs> for uh, for uh, stock buybacks anymore because that that would that that effectively ends the executive's ability to buy and sell stock, if, or if, it would end their ability to, to um, do stock engage buybacks. in buybacks. Yeah, okay. <laughs> exactly. Right. They can, right. If they don't do buybacks I, and they yeah. instead invest in their own company and increase they can sales and, yeah. and yeah. the stock price goes up then they get the earnings sell. have gone up, then they can sell and make a profit. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. I, I, I'm seeing this clearly now and the power of that change is, is more apparent. To me, I would have just taxed him at 10%. You know, mm -hmm. I would have just said, look, go, go for it. But we get 10% of everything you do. 
Yeah, well, there's there's a proposal on that, uh, Nick. Uh, you know, uh, as part of the Build Back Better uh, RIP uh, agenda, there was a excise tax of one percent. Uh, we could get up to ten percent, twenty percent. I personally think that we should move back to a pre nineteen eighty two standard mm-hmm. where these open market repurchases were seen as pernicious, yeah. as manipulative, and just ban it. And yeah, that's it. hundred percent. Except in extraordinary circumstances, right? Correct. Right. Yeah. Right. If you want to yeah. distribute, you know, you can use the dividend channel, which is more recognized as, as adding value. So speaking of taxes, uh, how would this uh, centimillionaire tax affect people like Nick? <laughs> well, I can't say I know the ins and outs of, of, of your tax returns, Nick, but uh, essentially uh, this would prevent many centimillionaires from being able to pay less than 20%, essentially, to get around and avoid the income tax code in, in really important ways. And to be clear, I, I pay more than 20%, Goldie, already. So. so it wouldn't affect you at all. There you go. What, I said people is, like Nick. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So what this is really focused on, right, is to deal with this really outstanding and, and pernicious gap between what ordinary people pay in income tax, um, you know, on average, something like 14 to 20 percent uh, at the federal level, and what you know, centimillionaires and billionaires pay, which is anywhere between zero and maybe eight percent. I think on average was the one of the latest uh, studies, um, and say, hey, no matter how rich you are, you can't you know get beyond the law, and you pay 20 percent, including importantly on realized gains. So, if you're a Zuckerberg and Facebook stock jumps uh, 20%, you're going to pay on an annual level the existing capital gains tax on that uh, unrealized gain, gain, even if you didn't sell the stock. Is that the main part of, of how this works? Uh, how the, or, or do they have specifics in terms of this? I guess it's like the alternative minimum billionaire tax. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it would set a floor for those worth more than $100 million and, you know, uh, apply also, as I mentioned, just to, to those unrealized capital gains, right. which is important because this is happening within a context, right, of a growing consensus, at least in many parts of the Democratic Party, that we need to tax the ultra wealthy more effectively. And there are different ways to do that. You know, the wealth tax was very much discussed during the campaign and, and a little bit uh, after that. That would tax dynastic wealth. That would tax, right, the stock of wealth at a mm-hmm. 2% level or an 8% level. Whereas this proposal, which is really sort of a, an iteration of Senator Wyden's mark to market proposal, would tax the growth of wealth. And, so, and it's really, in that sense, more of an income tax than a wealth tax. Okay, what else is in the budget? Well, those are, the, those are really the, the, the big ticket items from the corporate power side. I mentioned this uh, fossil fuel tax preferences, eliminating those. That's mm-hmm. pretty significant when you think about climate change. It's not a, a silver bullet by any means, but we give away so much money to oil and gas companies every how single much? year. How, mu- how much? Oh, and in the, in the hundreds of millions a year. So these proposals, if you eliminate these fossil fuel tax preferences, would be in the range of $45 billion saved over 10 years. So we're talking you know, $5 billion a year it, just in giveaways and tax preferences to, to oil companies and gas companies. So, that, so I think that's, that's another angle here, which is important to mention. It wasn't necessarily new. It's something that's been discussed quite a bit. But if we were to get there, that would automatically then 
push, you, you know, create a disincentive essentially for those companies and maybe more of an incentive for the, the um, clean energy companies to come online. So, so let me ask you something, Nico, in, in your opinion, how much of these tax proposals are about raising additional revenue in a more equitable fashion and how much of it is about countervailing power? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I think they're both, most of the conversation, you, you know, around these tax proposals over the past year has really been about raising revenue, pay-fors. Oh, and by the way, if we can create some more equity, that's great too. But I think it's important that there's more roles of a tax code in our economy than just revenue and redistribution. There's also repricing and regulatory effects that can restructure opportunity and power in our economy. And so these particular proposals, I think, are also, even if they're not talked about as such, they're also about restructuring the economy in ways where people that are working for a living don't have as much burden, and those that are uh, passively enjoying their wealth have a, pay a little bit more than they are now. And that would change incentives, right? If you're incentivized to make a lot of money because the tax code wouldn't tax it, you know, maybe if it's taxed away, your incentives uh, are, are a little bit less and you may look for more promising things to do with your life and change the way, you know, you make decisions in a company. To your point, Nick, if buybacks were taxed, companies may then reinvest uh, in workers, uh, in R&D, in productive investments, et cetera. So, Taxes really do shape incentives, uh, but we can do that in a positive way, I think, to, to for a more progressive economy. And that's what part of what this is moving towards. But I think there's other tax proposals which are also very important. Excess profits tax is one of those, which I think needs to be considered mm -hmm. as a complement, especially when we think of the runaway profits over the past few years since the pandemic began. And that's an old style World War II tax that would disincentivize companies from from profiting, but wouldn't affect companies that aren't profiting whatsoever. And then, you know, I think in complement to the minimum income tax for centimillionaires, we have to think about a, a wealth tax to go along with it because they tax different types of activity and create different types of complementary incentives. I'm wondering how much, I mean, obviously this is a budget proposal. We all know that the Democrats have, they don't really control <laughs> the Senate. You know, it's hard to get things through the through the Senate, uh, and some of these I can just see are not not up Mansion's uh, uh, line right here. So, but but I'm wondering how much just proposing these things and talking about it changes the narrative and starts to change behavior. I know Starbucks recently announced that it was going to halt stock buybacks and put money back into the company instead. Remains to be seen. Uh, how much they live up to that. But are we beginning to see a shift in the way CEOs are, are thinking about how they run their companies? I mean, even in the face of the record buybacks we're seeing right now? As I mentioned before, I think it's, it's potential that this is just sort of one of the straws that breaks the camel's back. You'd think back all the way back to the CARES Act, right? Under the Trump administration, there was a ban on companies using uh, bailout money to engage in share buybacks. The airline industry, for example, stopped uh, buying back shares as a result of the CARES, CARES Act. And that was something that was supported by 
senators from Sanders to Rubio. Um, and then you've had much discussion since then that the budget, Biden's budget uh, supporting these curbs is the latest. But I think it's a growing consensus that that something's wrong, something's very wrong in corporate America. There's no retain and reinvest model anymore. It's just, it's uh, downsize and distribute. And in the Starbucks example, it was really pretty stark, right? I mean, you all over there in Seattle probably know more than I do, but this company spent nearly $12 billion in fiscal 19 and 20 in buying back shares. And just in October, they said they would spend an additional 20 billion over three years on repurchases and dividends. I think it was around half on, on repurchases. Um, and then Schultz comes back in as CEO and says, oh, that's enough. We're going to pause. We need to, quote unquote, invest more profit into our people. Depending on your views, you may see that cynically or optimistically. Um, but I think it's a, it's a sign. The CEO of Intel did the same thing similarly. Mm -hmm. Both of them got dinged in terms of their price uh, stock prices. That's an important structural matter. The investors are uh, expecting share of purchases once there's an announcement been made. Yeah, and that's and why, I yeah, I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, if I could interject, I mean, I, just to be clear, I think eliminating the ability of executives to buy and sell stock, if the company has done a stock buyback, will have a cooling effect on stock buybacks. But be super clear, the principal driver of stock buybacks is not the greed of executives, although that is a part of it. The principal driver is the greed of Wall Street, mm -hmm. of institutional investors mm -hmm. who put relentless pressure on those executive teams who in many cases would far prefer to invest back in the businesses, right? Who, would, mm -hmm. who infinitely would prefer to retain all of the earnings, pay their people more, invest in new you know, technologies, but effectively cannot because they're being blackmailed every day by their institutional investors. It does show you, Nick, though, the power of uh, charismatic uh, CEOs who have the ability to buck the board and to buck That's right, and just tell them Be to go pound sand. Right, because- It's uh, not the board, it's the, it's, the, it's the institutional right. investors. Because mm -hmm. Howard right. Schultz felt like he could come in, come back yeah. in and make that decision. And you know, famously, uh, Steve Jobs uh, hated stock buybacks and even dividends. They paid right. almost no dividend yeah. and he resisted that until he died. Right. And since since his death, you know, Apple was profitable before and the stock price was going up before, but since then they've become are they the largest uh, stock repurchaser in the in the world? Absolutely. 85 well, billion dollars last year. Uh, yeah. That's about 90% of their net income was paid out and, in buybacks. And, and, and that is, you know, Steve Jobs dies and yeah. new CEO comes in and he says, yeah. sure, let's do stock buybacks. Right. Something which Steve Jobs might never have done because as far as he was concerned, you know, yeah, it was screw corrupt. you. He wasn't going to take. But, he, yeah. you know, he knew it was a corrupt <laughs> practice and he had the. Yeah. This is, of course, why regulations matter, because you, you have to. Most people are weak. <laughs> Only a few are strong. And so regulations make the decision for the weak. You know, and that's why we also we've been saying, you know, when we get a chance to talk to any senior executives and companies or the regulators and rule makers, you know, this is uh, exactly why you need enforced public rules. Right. You want to look at it cynically, it provides cover for CEOs to do the right thing. Right? Correct. Uh, Correct. Did, did they ever secretly like tell you, please, you know, 
keep me from doing this? <laughs> no, no, I'm comments. sure. I, I'm sure a ton of people would do that. A, a, a ton of people would do that. Not like not everybody who runs a big company in America is a short-sighted sociopath. I would say that the solid majority want to do the right thing for their customers, for their workers, and for the business long term. But they are trapped in an incredibly stupid, pernicious feedback loop that makes that that does not reward that behavior. It rewards short-termism and stupidity. And you know, in most cases, these CEOs didn't create this circumstance. They didn't change the rule. They are a prisoner of these circumstances in the way that the rest of the country is. So you know, I think they'll be, um, you know, the people on Wall Street will fucking hate it. Because all they care about is that that's the enemy here are the institutional investors who only care, don't care at all about the businesses themselves or the people or the products or anything else. All they care about is the stock price. And that that will be the enemy here, not so much the CEOs who, in again, in most cases, want to build a good business. Okay. So you, you mentioned there were good and bad things in this budget. We know that we talk about this. Nick has said it frequently, budgets are, a budget is a moral document. Uh, how, how moral is this budget, <laughs> budget proposal? You know, I think um, on the economics side, it, it's really not bad. Uh, I think where it gets a little bit dicey and ugly is, you know, first of all, it, it falls along with a bit of a change in the, you know, narrative to this so-called unity agenda which never really existed and never will exist with, with the Republican Party as it is. But so there's fig leaves to issues of, uh, you know, uh, police spending and fig leaves to increasing the military budget, which is way too big, in my opinion, and does not need further increases. And then just kind of one of the ugly things here, in my opinion, is that, you know, they want to spend $1.5 billion of a $2.5 billion uh, budget to not invest in anyone except to bring down the, the deficit. Trillion. Uh, trillion, excuse me. Yeah. Yes, excuse me. What am I? <laughs> so yeah, they want to spend you know, $1.5 trillion of a $2.5 trillion budget to decrease the deficit, which is not what the priorities I believe Biden was elected on. And uh, it's a little bit bizarre to me that you would increase taxes on wealthy people to pay back the deficit, <laughs> the politics there don't line up, but also the economic no. sense it does not line up, especially with interest rates, maybe increasing, but still very, very low. And, and the needs and the returns on investments are so high. Right. De Democrats never learn. They always think, hey, this time voters are going to believe we're the ones who are responsible with the economy because we're paying down the deficit. And then Republicans come in and they push up the deficit and reap all the rewards of the tax cuts and the, the hot economy. And then Democrats have to come back in and pay down the deficit. We're always the bad guys. Yeah, yeah. But we know very well that the best way to drive, the, you know, decreases in the deficit is to have an equitable, thriving economy. And you can't have that today without productive investments, without climate change, uh, you know, zero carbon and low, uh, sorry, low carbon and high care economy. So, yeah. What do you think, Nick? Final question. Uh, so why do you do this work? 
you know, part of it is the family I grew up in. You know, I was taught to treat everyone equally with dignity and respect. And so, you know, by extension, I wanted to do things that would make policies and our government and one another in our economy, um, you know, treat each other with dignity and respect and curb structural inequities. But maybe even more deeply, you know, um, I do this work because of my commitment to hope. I, I used to work internationally. I work with uh, Syrian dem democracy activists uh, in Syria, and, and they always, always used to tell me this was years ago that we were condemned to hope. And I, this was before the war. I never quite understood what that meant until the war started. And what I think they meant there is that when you see the world caving in in front of you, despair is just not an option because it leads to paralysis and gives away to power, gives everything away to injustice. And the only kind of renewable resource and absolute necessity in the darkest times that you have is hope and, and, and retaining hope, uh, because without hope, you don't really have options for a better future. And, it, you know, when I say hope, it's not the kind of flighty, airy optimism that often demotivates, you know, this kind of false certainty that everything is going to be all right. I'm talking about a deep commitment. Uh, that when there's a fire all around you, you're going to find an axe and break through the door and uh, pull yourself out to safety. That's the driving hope that I'm talking about, you know. And so my work is more than anything else trying to get wins that show there's a reason for hope, uh, but also to move in a direction so that there's uh, an economy which allows everyone to have and live up to their hopes and dreams. That's awesome. Well, Nico, thank you so much for being with us. Great work. Goldie, Nick, it was a pleasure to talk to you. I really enjoyed the podcast. Hope yeah. to do it again soon. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Well, my big takeaway from this conversation, uh, of course, has to do with one of our favorite topics, Nick, stock buybacks. Yeah. We had hoped there could have been a little more on stock buybacks, but that three-year a ban on uh, selling stocks, uh, a CEO selling their stocks after announcing a buyback. Man, that really puts a crimp into uh, the behavior of the past uh, uh, decade and a half or so. Yeah, I would think so. So I, I have to think about it more, but definitely I, I hope it's not just the CEO, but the entire C-suite of executives, anybody who gets, in fact, a stock as a comp, that will put a lot of downward pressure on right. stock buybacks. But again, the real pressure, I mean, I just think it's, un I think it's just being dishonest to say that all of this behavior is being driven by greedy CEOs who are trying to jack the, the share price in the short term for themselves. There is some of that behavior, but the real pressure comes from institutional investors, Wall Street. But it puts pressure on CEOs resisted. And I, and I want to go into why this is uh, so important. And we've talked about this before. So essentially, and this is, this is intentional in, in paying CEOs with uh, stock and stock options, what you're doing is rewarding them for driving up share prices. That's how they're getting most of their compensation. Correct. And share prices are largely determined by earnings per share, future earnings per share. That right. that the the Wall the Street is not earnings per share. Right, they're not yeah. rewarding you for what you've. Wall Street doesn't reward you for what you've done in the past. That's Correct. already worked into the price. When the price is going up, they're looking at uh, earnings per share into the future. 
Correct. And there's two ways to increase earnings per share. Traditionally, the main way to do it was you take your profits and you reinvest it in the company to grow the company, grow right. your sales, you grow make your, better products grow and sell them market, to more people. Right, <laughs> and increase your earnings. So yeah. you're investing in increasing earnings. Your earnings go up. The shares remain steady. You do the math. You have an increased earnings per share. There's another way, though, to increase earnings per share. And it's a lot simpler, and that is reduce the number of shares. Yeah. Same amount of earnings, maybe even fewer earnings, doesn't matter. But if you buy back stock and you reduce the number of shares, the EPS, the earnings per share, grow, goes up. Now, given a choice between these two, the first one, investing in your company, that may be the responsible thing to do, but it's risky. And it's very long term because you don't make these investments and all of a sudden your earnings go no. up. And it's You're hard. Making these, right, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard, it's hard it's to make better products and sell them to more people. Right. And, <laughs> and it doesn't always work. And yeah. it's way out in the future. It takes years to recoup th these investments. The other one, stock buybacks, is a sure thing and Super it is easy. immediate. Yeah. Super Absolutely easy. immediate. You buy back the number of a uh, number of shares, and your earnings per share goes up. And so there is this huge incentive to go the short term route if, in fact, the pressure is to increase EPS. Yeah. What this does is it tells uh, executives, C-suite executives, that well, okay, you can choose this route, and this may be what Wall Street wants, but you're not going to profit from it. Yeah. And this is important for a larger reason, because we have to understand what buybacks have done over the past couple decades is that it has decreased investment in the economy. People have this idea that somehow most investment comes from uh, st stock offerings, comes from Wall Street, comes from banks, bank loans. It does not. Most investments in our economy, in, in, in uh, R&D and in building new equipment and factories, comes from retained earnings. These are the, yeah. the profits that are coming in, you're retaining it, and you're reinvesting the company. Historically, that is where most economic investment has come from, the vast majority of it, not from the markets, from retained earnings. And if instead of using these retained earnings to reinvest in your company, you're just creating this paper wealth by buying back stock and jacking up the price. Yeah. Well, yeah. the economy's not going to grow as fast. Productivity's not going to grow as fast. Wages are not going to grow it as fast. It's bad for the economy. It's if you're a capitalist, it's bad for capitalism. Yeah. Not if you're an institutional investor, though. And again, right, that's where the pressure comes from. That's who is going to hate. Warren Buffett is going to hate this, <laughs> right? Uh, it, because, you know, what matters to those guys is the stock price going up. And I, I, I don't doubt that study that says that close to half of the increase in the stock market of the last number of years is a consequence of stock buybacks. I, I just don't doubt it. I, I'm not sure how you, how you do that analysis, but it just, it feels right to me. So we'll see, you know, I'm not confident in um, uh, Biden's ability to get a moral yeah. budget through this Congress, but, yeah. you know, give him credit for trying. Yep, absolutely.
Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.